Seven words from the cross. Several weeks ago, we started this series when we one by one have taken these seven statements or words that Jesus made in the dying moments of his life. We're told, and you're going to see it again this morning, that around nine o'clock on that particular morning, Jesus was nailed to the cross. He was already in the process of dying. He had been beaten so bad, and you've heard me say this two or three times now, that most people would have never survived the flogging, the scourging that Jesus took actually before he went to the cross. Most people would have died as a result of that beating. So he was dying when he went to the cross. He was there for six hours, 9 a.m. till about 3 o'clock, and he made seven statements. We've been looking at these statements. Some came early on. The last three come almost in rapid succession, and we're going to look at the final one right now, and we're going to unpack it. We're going to sort of uh, take it apart a little bit and look at it piece by piece because I think there's so much truth and encouragement in Jesus' words if we'll simply embrace them. So let's begin. We're going to go to Luke chapter 23. You're going to see Jesus' final statement just before he died. It says, beginning at verse 44, around noon, so he's already been on the cross, we know this, you'll see it, uh, for about three hours, around noon, darkness came over the entire land and lasted until three in the afternoon. The sun had stopped shining. We talked about that on that particular day. Uh, Huge storm. Uh, We really do not know what happened. It wasn't an eclipse of some sort, but it becomes uh, unbelievably dark. The sun had stopped shining. The curtain in the temple was split in two. And what that meant was there had been this separation. As you came into the temple, the curtain separated, uh, you know, just general population from the holy place, from the holy of holies. And only the high priest could go on like certain special days, like the Day of Atonement. And when the curtain was ripped, God wanted it to be evident that it was him that was doing it, not man. So it was torn from the top to the bottom, not the bottom to the top. The temple, the curtain in the temple was torn in two, split in two. Jesus cried out, Once again, he raises his voice. This is the third time in the seven statements that he gives elevation to his voice. And now we see his seventh and final statement. Father, he said, into your hands I entrust my spirit. After he said this, he died. When an army officer, who is actually a Roman centurion, we're going to talk about him in just a moment, saw what had happened, what did he do? This old um, you know, crusty a guy who had seen these kind of things, crucifixions again and again. What does he do this time? He praised God. There's no evidence whatsoever that this, this officer had ever praised God before. But when Jesus died, he sees what has happened. We're going to talk about that. He praised God, and look at what he said. He said, certainly this man was innocent. We need to talk about it. I'm going to get into his words, these, fi- these final words, this last statement that he made in just a moment. But just before we get there, there's some things that I want you to understand and sort of think through. Verse 47, we saw it there in regards to this army officer, this Roman centurion, and what he makes is not a light, is not a casual statement. He said, certainly this man, talking about Jesus, was innocent. And he said this after uh, he had saw, this is the language, after he saw what had happened. So what does he see? That is so utterly convincing to him that there's something different about this man. Now, what we need to to process in that regard is not only has this army officer, I, I want you to really think about this, not only has he seen Jesus die, but he has seen how Jesus has died. He has seen this again and again. Now, probably uh, a guy like this, a Roman centurion like him, if he had been at it any time at all, which he probably had, he had seen by this time 
hundreds of crucifixions. Jesus was not going to be his first. It was not going to be his last crucifixion that he would ever be an eyewitness to. He had seen hundreds of them probably by this time. But what was different, and he knows it's different, not only how Jesus died, but, you know, what he said before he died. Because typically speaking, criminals were crucified. We know Jesus was innocent, but criminals were crucified. And the statements that were coming out of Jesus's mouth, these seven statements were words that this guy had never heard before. For example, Jesus began right after, not long after he had been nailed to the cross, he begins by saying, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now, this Roman centurion would have never heard anything like that. Never would a person crucified had said anything like that. They would have cursed. They would have mocked. They would have said all kind of violent, uh, inhumane things to those who had been responsible for nailing them to the cross, but not Jesus. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Another thing this Roman centurion had heard Jesus say was to this second, you know, criminal uh, that he was crucified with in close proximity to him. When this man reaches out to Jesus, he said simply, you know, he didn't understand a whole lot. He had never been to Sunday school. He had never really read the Bible because the Bible, except for the Old Testament, had not even been written yet. All he needed to do, all he knew to do was to ask Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom. And Jesus said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. This Roman centurion has never heard anything like that before. Even in the moments when Jesus was dying, he was not thinking about himself. He was thinking about others. And we know because we covered this in one of his statements, he looks out at his mom and then he looks at his best friend, John, and he says, mom, here's your son. And then he says to John from the cross while he's dying, he says, John, and he looks in the direction of his mom. And he said, here's your mother. Take care of my mom for me. And this Roman centurion would have never heard anything like that. He never would have heard anybody just raise their voices. Jesus did. We saw this recently and said, it is finished. And as we talked about on that Sunday, Jesus was not talking about his life. His life was not finished, but his mission had been fulfilled. What God sent him to do had been accomplished. And so what was it about this, this, the way that Jesus died and the words that Jesus said that was so convincing that this man would say, you know what? He is innocent. This man is innocent. He is who he claimed to be. He is the son of God. Now, that, that is remarkable when you think about it. Now, another thing I want to touch on before we really get into these, these uh, words that Jesus said, this seventh statement, is it's often been debated, well, who was it really that took Jesus' life? Who took his life? Was it the Roman soldiers? Are they the ones who took Jesus' life? And then some people, because this debate has been around for a long, long time, was it, you know, was it the Jewish religious leaders who should have, instead of embracing him, felt jealousy and anger against him, accused him of being blasphemous because he made statements that he was the son of God, which in fact he was. So was it the Jewish religious leaders that, you know, had taken Jesus's life from him? Or was it Pilate? I mean, if you're going to assign blame to somebody, can't you blame Pilate? I mean, we know from what we read that there seems to be this essence of what he's going through that he wants to release Jesus because he knows, it says, you read it sometime, that religious priests and leaders were jealous of the popularity of Jesus and that they had betrayed him for that reason. And so Pilate really wanted to release him, most believe, but he did not. And he handed them over handed him over to be crucified. So, so who was it really that took Jesus' life? Roman soldiers, Jewish religious leaders? Was it Pilate? And the answer to that question is none of the above. 
None of them took Jesus' life. Now, how do we know this? I want you to look at this verse on the screen. This is John 10, 18. Jesus tells us who took his life. It's right here. This is what he said. He said, no one takes my life from me. Nobody. What did Jesus say? He said, I give it up willingly. How many of you know, had Jesus wanted to come down off of the cross, he could have come down at any moment. In fact, Jesus could have put up such a fight that Jesus never would have went to the cross in the first place. He said, nobody takes my life from me. I give it up willingly. He said, I have the power to give it up. And he did that death. And then he said, and I have the power to receive it back again, which he did in the resurrection. And we talked about that on Easter. So nobody took his life. Jesus laid down his life willingly. Now, I want you to consider one more thing before we dig into Jesus' last statement. This is really important. I want you to think about it, and maybe you've never seen this before. Maybe nobody's ever mentioned this to you, but when Jesus made his final statement, it was actually connected. It was tethered to a prayer. Actually, it was a psalm that was converted into a prayer that basically every Jewish child would pray before bedtime. It was usually taught to them by their mothers at a very early age. Now, in the days, you know, a more modern era when we have tried to teach our kids to pray at night, when they were really small before going to bed, now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul, if I should die before I wake. And so we've done that. But that was not so, you know, among Jewish families. And they would teach their children from very small age to pray a prayer as they went to bed that night, sort of entrusting them as they slept into the care of God. Most likely... Mary, Jesus' own mother, had recited this prayer many times to him as a small boy. Now, it's not on the screen, but I want you to listen how exceptionally similar these words are to what Jesus said. All right, listen, this is Psalm 31.5. I want you to be clear on this. This is Psalm 31.5. This is what Jewish families would teach their little boys and girls to pray just before bedtime. And this is what it says. I'm going to read it to you exactly. Into your hands I entrust my spirit. How close is that? It's identical. Into your hands I entrust my spirit. What did Jesus say? In Luke 23, 46, which you just saw, he only changes it slightly. He adds before it the word Father, and he says the exact same thing. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is actually, in the closing moments of his life on the cross, he is praying. He is quoting Scripture. And in the most difficult moments of his life, his final words remind us of four truths. And Jesus is praying this because Jesus feels this. But I believe, friends, I really do believe that in this statement, especially all of them, but in this statement especially, he is wanting us to understand there's something about God that when you and I are going through a dark time, Or when you and I are going through a difficult time, there are some things about what Jesus said, his last statement, that you and I need to keep in the forefront of our thinking. And this is when we're going to sort of segment them, and I want to take them apart in four pieces and talk about them. Now, why did Jesus say, Psalm 31, 5, I entrust my spirit into your hands. Jesus said, Father, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. There's something that is incredibly affectionate about words such as father or dad or daddy. Now, for me personally, my, my, uh, my kids have never really called me father unless the gift of sarcasm has suddenly overcome them. 
you know, in that case, it may be father, you know, sarcasm, sarcasm, but generally it was dad. And I always loved hearing dad. When they were little, it was oftentimes daddy. And man, those are some of the most incredible words that a father could ever hear. In fact, now that I'm a, a grandfather, there's another term that I love, and it is, it is this one, papa. I love papa. In fact, this week, um, my, my son called me, the one who has uh, the two little girls, you know, they moved to Illinois. Our other son is right here on the front row with his wife. And so uh, Brent had called me, and so uh, I'm not able to pick up. I'm in a meeting or something, but I call him back later. And I said, sorry, Mr. Call, buddy. And he said, well, I was just trying to call because Landry, who is one, she's just walking around, and she was like, paw, 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 paw. And so I like to interpret that. She was looking for her paw, paw. And so I, you know, I'm FaceTiming him. And so he says to me, well, she's right here. And he turns the phone and I see her little chubby face and I start talking, hey, Landry, hey, Landry, Kate. And she's like, Papa, Papa, Papa. And then I see her stand up and she leans forward and I see this little cute chubby face coming right toward the phone and she gives Papa a big kiss via phone. And I'm like, oh, man, how great is that? Father. That's what Jesus says. Father, it's an affectionate term. Dad, Abba, Father, Daddy, God. Now, I, I do need to mention this because I think in a crowd this size, that term is not a great term for everybody. I wish it were. It's disheartening to me to think that when you hear the word dad or daddy, it does not... It does not bring up positive emotions. In fact, maybe it's unpleasant. Maybe it's negative, negative reality for so many people. And uh, I know that sometime, and, uh, you know, it can be a little bit, you know, of a hurdle for people to get over when they're trying to understand the, the great expansive love of God, the love of a heavenly father, when they've not really had that on earth. And I know that there are many, many of you, because I've talked to a lot of people, that when they hear dad or daddy or father, it's, it's not positive. But even having said that, if you happen to have a good dad, maybe uh, you have had or you had when he was alive a, a good dad, maybe you'd say even a great dad. The reality is there's no dads. None of us are perfect by any means. As fathers, we're sometimes inconsistent and we can be erratic and we can be selfish. But this is where our Heavenly Father is so different. Even if you've got a good, maybe even if you've got a great father, this is where your Heavenly Father is even so remarkably superior in this regard because your Father in Heaven is matchless and He's flawless and He's unequaled and He's faultless and He loves you more than you have ever been loved before. You've never been loved the way that God loves you. You never have. And he cares about every single thing that is going on in your life. He cares about every detail that you're going through right now in your life. Every bit of it. And as you'll see in just a moment, he's working behind the scenes. We'll come to that in a second. We have three kids. Our youngest is a girl. In about three weeks, she's going to be 20. She's a sophomore in college at Southeastern University. So on this week, she took her final exams, Monday through Thursday, I think, were the days she took finals. And then guess what she did? On Friday morning, she boards a plane, and she flies up to see Kenley and Landry. Three and, so she, that, I mean, how many of you know that is totally unfair? That is not right. So she's up there, and she'll be there till like the 22nd. So she flies there Friday morning. Now, I mentioned to you she's almost 20, three weeks away from there, thereabouts. And up until this point in her life, she has never in her life 
had to pay a visit to emergency room until Friday night. Friday night. So what happened was she had said to me the night before I had dinner with her, and she had looked at her hand. We were standing in the parking lot after we ate, and she looked at her hand, and she said, Dad, my, my hand is a little bit swollen, but it wasn't serious. It wasn't significant. It seemed a minor thing. And then, you know, the next morning she caught the flight. Uh, later, as we're all talking, she's talking about her lip is beginning to swell. And I'm just thinking, okay, it's slightly swollen, but then, you know, FaceTiming her because I wanted to see it for myself. I'm like, when, you know, I see her face, I mean, her bottom lip is swollen like you can't believe. I mean, it's it's just huge. Well, that was, uh, of course, alarming to us. And so long story short, you know, they start communicating and they're like, hey, you know, bring her you know, to the emergency room, to the closest emergency room, which, you know, my son and his family live in the middle of cornfields in Illinois. They live out from the city, about 30 minutes. And so drive to the nearest emergency room, and there happened to be one, and, you know, they're saying some other things like, you know, if her throat, because anytime, I'm not a medical person, but if you have this extreme swelling in your lips, then you start thinking about, you know, tongue and throat and all of that, right? And they had, in fact, said if her throat starts swelling on the way, call 911, even while you're driving. So all of this is going on, and I'm thinking, because even though she's 20, I'm thinking my baby is several states away, and here she is, and I care about going, what is going on in her life. And do you think, because it's all playing out, and we're hearing, all right, now they've started an IV. We don't know uh, what caused, the, you know, they treated, they started the IV. Um, and so... You know, steroids, Benadryl, all of that. She's fine now, by the way. But uh, do you think at any point during that process while she's in the emergency room, by the way, I didn't mention this, they went to, they live in such a small town that when they took her to the emergency room, some of you are going to love this, she was the only patient in the entire emergency room. She's the only one. So she got like special service. Now, do you think at any point during that night, I just said, listen, I am, Liz, I know they've started an IV. I know, her, I know what they're saying, but I'm really tired. I, I think I'm just going to go go on to bed. And you can just fill in the blanks tomorrow, and I'll find out. Absolutely not. There was no way I was going to be able to rest until I knew that my child was okay. Can I tell you, God is not able to rest until he knows that his children are okay. God is not able to relax till he knows. I love this verse. I want you to look at it with me. Psalm 103, 13. It's up here on the screen. I love this. It's what we're talking about. This is what Jesus said, Father. And then this is what we read in the Psalms. As the Father has compassion for his children, even us earthly fathers who are so imperfect, as a Father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. And what did Jesus say in that final statement, the seventh statement? He began by saying, Father, what is Jesus saying? And he's saying it's something that we need to realize in our dark days, in our difficult days, that we have a Father in heaven who loves us. In fact, can I tell you, your Father in heaven loves you outrageously and unconditionally. He is compassionate and he is able to handle any problem that you will ever face in your life. Our Father in heaven. We have a Father in heaven who loves us and cares for us. And that's how Jesus began, Father. But he did not stop there. He said, Father, I entrust. I entrust. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, I want you to catch this, and this is something important. When you're walking through a dark time or a difficult time, this is mission critical that you keep in the forefront of your mind. It is this. Our Father in heaven can be fully trusted. He can. 
fully trusted. You see, one of the great questions of your life and mine that we're going to have to answer is who are you going to trust? Who are you going to trust? Where am I going to place my utmost confidence? Where? Who am I going to trust? Where am I going to, I mean, who am I going to put all of my utmost confidence in? Now, I, I want to just, you know, walk you through this. I know when I ask you these questions, they're somewhat rhetorical in nature because I already know, I think I know how you're going to respond. You may surprise me, but I think how I, I know how you're going to respond. So I'm going to give you some options so that when you think about where you want to put your ultimate trust, who do you want to have the most confidence in, I'm going to give you some options, and then you let me know. Are you up for that? Wave at me so I know you're with me. Can you just wave at me? All right, so when you're thinking about who am I going to trust the most, where am I going to put my ultimate trust, I'm going to give you some options. So let's start, let's start with Congress. Is that, is that where ultimate trust, Senate, you know, is, is, that where ultim- is that ultimately where you're going to put your trust? I don't think so. All right, what about, what about in the popular culture of our day who uh, s- tells us everything we need to think and do and believe and, you know, they're you know, right and culture and this is the way? I mean, is that, is that really when you have an ever-changing culture that is saying different things over a span of time? Is that where you really, and I think the answer to that is, is no. Uh, what about, do you want to put, you know, uh, your ultimate trust, because they always get the facts and the details straight, do you want to put your ultimate trust in the media? Maybe not. What, what about in yourself? I mean, do you want to put your ultimate trust in yourself? And I, I think not. I mean, that, when you think about that, where are we, and all of us have got to answer that question, Where are we going to put our trust? Now, listen, I want you to hear this. This It's really important. If you're going to entrust your life and your future to something or someone, then you need to know for certain some things about this person. Number one, if you're really going to trust them fully, if you're going to put ultimate trust in them, then number one, it would be wise for them to know everything, for them to never, ever lie to you, for them to 100% of the time put your best interest in mind at heart and for them to be absolutely perfect. Now, somebody like that, you can trust. And what that does is that pretty much limits your options to God. God. Look at this next verse. It's a tremendous verse. Psalm 33, 4 says this, For the word of the Lord holds true. I love this. Look at this with me, everybody. And, he, and we can trust everything he does. I want to ask you this question. What exactly do you need to entrust to God? What do you need to entrust to God? And let me help you with this. You need to entrust anything to God that is causing you to worry. If there's anything in your life that you are anxious about, you need to entrust that to God. If you're worried about it, you need to give it to God. If you're you're fearful, you need to give it to God. Now, I know that, and you know that. I just wonder if you've ever done something that I've done a countless number of times. Have you ever done something like this? You're worried about something, you're anxious about something, and you know, you know in your mind, and you know from the Scriptures what you need to do. You need to turn that over to God. And so you say, as if God were sitting here, God, here's what I'm going to do. I've got this problem. I've got this dilemma. I'm anxious about it. I'm afraid about it, and I'm going to give it to you. Maybe even as we're getting getting ready to hand it to God, we, we sort of quote scripture that I can cast all of my cares. God, here's what I'm doing. I'm going to cast all of my cares upon you, God, because you care for me. And I'm worried about this. I'm anxious about it. So I'm going to give it to you. So here, God, I, I give it to you here. I'm, I'm taking it from me and I'm putting it onto you. All right. 
And then we take a few paces and we're like, could I get that back now? Could you please, you know, I, 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 I want to carry this. I feel better if, you know, I'm feeling, you know, how many, ta- how many of you have done that? I've done that so many times. God, here it is. Okay, thank you. Give it back. We need to entrust anything to God that causes us to be worried or anxious. We need to trust anything to God that causes us pain. What's going on in your life right now that is painful to you? What is it that just the thought of it just causes you internally just, just to ache, to hurt? You need to turn that. You need to entrust that. Father, I entrust. Who are you going to trust? You and I can entrust to God. We should entrust to God anything that causes us to have worry or anxiety. We need to entrust to God that anything that is causing us pain. We need to entrust to God anything that has created confusion and doubts. And pray for God to give us wisdom. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is our teacher. James said, if we lack wisdom, all we've got to do is ask of God, and God will give us wisdom. We entrust it to God. It's important for us to do that. 2 Timothy 1.12, it's not on the screen, but I want to, I want to read this to you. This is, this is Paul, and, and this is a dark. You know, Paul's not on a cross as Jesus was when he made the statement. He's not being crucified, but he is in prison, and he's not just an occupant there. He says, I'm suffering in prison. He's not just taking up space. He's got problems, big problems, but I want you to listen to what he said. Paul said, I'm suffering here in prison, but then, you know, he turns the page. He says, but I'm not ashamed of it, and then he adds why. He said, for I know the one in whom I trust. I know I'm trusting God. I don't want to be here, and it's horrible being here, and I'm suffering while being here, but this is what I know. I know in whom I trust, and he said, and I'm sure that he is able to guard what I've, here's that word, listen for it, what I've entrusted to him until the day of his return. I'm here, Paul said, I'm in prison, I'm in suffering, but I'm not really worried about it because I know in whom I have believed, and I've entrusted. You know what the word entrust means in the original language, in the Greek language? It is this idea of putting on deposit. We would think of it in this term. I'm not going to leave this valuable object in my home where it could be destroyed by fire or it could be taken as a result of theft. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take it to the bank and I'm going to put it in a safe deposit box. I know in whom I have believed and I am entrusting. I'm putting on safe deposit with God. And then we leave it with God. Father, I entrust. That's what Jesus said. But there's a third part of this final statement that I think is so valuable for us to consider. Father, Jesus said, I entrust. And then he says, my spirit. My spirit. We need to talk about that. Now, you're going to see this. I want to go ahead and give you this statement because I think it's what Jesus wants us to understand is that in our darkest times, in our most difficult days, that our Father in heaven is always at work even when we cannot see it. He's always at work. He always is. But the problem for us is we see temporary things, don't we? We see temporary things. Um, We see... He said, I entrust my spirit. Now, it's, it's hard for us to comprehend our spirit because we cannot see our spirit. We cannot see our soul. Now, we know that we have a body. That is undeniable. That is obvious. But this is what we know about our body. Our body, I hate to inform you of this, your body, my body, is eventually going to give out and die. It's going to wear out. And you know that. How many of you at this stage in your life, you, you get out of bed at least a microsecond slower than what you did when you were 15 years of age? And how many of you, when you do get up out of bed, have any of you, have you reached the point yet where you have some pains and you don't really remember doing 
anything that intense. It wasn't like you played in a football game or ran up and down a basketball court or, you know, competed. And you just, and it is a signal to us that our body is given out. However, however, your spirit or your soul is going to last forever. Your spirit is never going to age. Jesus said, Father, I entrust my spirit. See, often we're much more dialed into, I want you to think about this. I put my hands up so I can see you. How many of you are still with me? Wave at me so I know you're right here. Often we're much more dialed into our body than we are to our soul. And we comprehend much more easily temporary things than we do eternal things. See, why do, I, why do I find it easier to think about my body? I can see my body, but I don't think as much about my soul or my spirit. Why do I think about temporary things? Because that is the tangible world that I can reach out and touch. Why don't I think about eternal things more? Because I can't see them. And I'm coming to a point because I'm saying to you that God is always at work behind the scenes, even when we can't see it. Now, I want you to see this verse. It's a great verse. It's Paul speaking to some believers in Corinth. Look at it right here. I believe the guys have it. They do. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now, look at this next part. This is really, really important. Don't miss it. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen here, now. That's not where our focus needs to be, but what, on what is unseen. Paul said for what is seen is what? What is it? It's temporary. But what I cannot see, that's eternal. That's what matters most. So I think about my body because I can see my body, but God wants me to be thinking a lot more about my soul and about my spirit. I think a lot more about temporary things. Why? Because I see temporary things, but God wants me to think more about eternal things because that's, why, that's where I'm going to live forever. You're going to live forever in eternity, not in this world. So that's, and Jesus is saying, Father, I entrust what? My spirit. Now, you also need to know this, and this is tied into what we're talking about, and I want to deal with it before we move to the last one. You need to know this. There's going to be times, maybe even seasons in your life, when it's going to seem that God is silent. Where is he? Where is he? I'm talking to him, but he's not talking back. In fact, God, where are you? I've had that occur to me. Anybody, you ever been there? It's like, God, where are you? You're silent. I need you to speak to me. I need you. In fact, it may go beyond that. You may feel that you're even forgotten or forsaken by God. But this is what, please hear me on this. I know I just asked it, but I need to ask it one more time because I want to be sure you get this next part. How many of you are with me? Wave at me like this. This is what I want you to hear. Just because you cannot see it, it does not mean that God is not working behind the scenes to bring about good in your life. He's up to something good in your life. There are some of you right now, you're like, man, I'm going through this, and this is so painful, this is so difficult, this is so frustrating, this is so fearful to me, and I've talked to God about it, and it seems that God is not answering my prayers. It seems that God has forgotten all about me, and I don't even know where God is. Where is God? God is there. And God is working behind the scenes in your life. I'll give you one example, and I'll just give you the synopsis of it rather than the whole story. I'll give you one example. It's a great story in the Old Testament uh, that actually played out. There's this great man of God. He's called in the Scriptures a prophet, and he has a servant. One day, the servant, uh, you know, gets up. He walks outside that morning, and as he walks outside, he looks around, and he is immediately terror-stricken because he has seen that at some point, without them even knowing it, that they have now been surrounded by this numerous and this uh, very frightening army. 
and they've come to kill the prophet to him. You know, it's, it's, it's bad news all the way around. So he walks out, and all he can see is surrounded. Every direction that he turns, there is this terrifying, massive army. And so what does he have? Now, the Bible doesn't say this, and he maybe did not have one, although I would think he was probably on the verge of one. I think he, he probably almost had a panic attack. And so he turns around and he go, runs right back into the house. He gets the attention of the prophet. He tells the prophet what happened. Prophet gets up. Prophet is not alarmed. Prophet is not, you know, reacting, you know, strongly. The prophet walks out and he looks and he sees the army. He's like, mm, wow. But then God allows his, listen to this now. God allows the prophet to see something that the prophet's servant cannot see. God allows him to see what is going on behind the scenes. And he looks, and what the prophet can see is he can see in their defense is the army of the Lord. And listen, friends, it is more numerous and more powerful than the army that has invaded them. And he sees it, and he sees it, and he has no fear. He's not panic-stricken. And what does he do? He just simply prays, Lord, allow my servant to see what I'm able to see. And he's given some vision supernaturally by God And he looks and he sees the army still there, but now he sees the army of the Lord who is standing in their defense. What am I saying to you? I am saying to you, even when you cannot see God working behind the scenes of your life, it does not mean that he is not. And maybe you've taken a situation that seems utterly hopeless and impossible, and you're like, you know what? I don't know that this could ever be. I've had this problem so long. It is so big. It is so massive. It is so intimidating to me. I don't even know that God could do something about it. And you may not even realize that God is already at work on that thing that has you so frightened. I want to tell you about two things that happened this week, and I'll tell it to you quickly. Just the high points. There's a lady in our church. Some of you are going to know this name, Victoria Haig. A number of years ago, Victoria Haig, who's been a teacher, one of our teachers, she attends our church, Victory Church, and she teaches at our school, Victory Christian Academy. A number of years ago, she was diagnosed with cancer. She had some surgeries, and she, you know, made a recovery from that. And from what I remember, she went into, like, remission, only to have not too terribly long ago for the cancer to return. And when it came back the second time, it came back with a vengeance. And, I mean, all kind of problems very, very negative prognosis, lots of pain, trying to do everything they could in in the bones, and it was a fourth-stage cancer. I remember, I think it was last Sunday night, I can remember where I was standing in church at the North Campus that evening. I remember looking out at Victoria and just saying to myself, oh, man, she is going through so much. She's a single mom. She's got two great kids, And I just thought, oh, my goodness, if something miraculous does not happen. I remember thinking this. If something does not miraculously happen for her, her, her kids, her family, they're in big, big trouble. I think it was that same night while I'm thinking those thoughts, God was so powerfully working behind the scenes. Victoria said that she she is having a lot of pain. If I remember her words correctly, she was having a lot of pain, and she went. She just went down, and she was just praying. She wasn't asking anybody to pray for her. She was just praying. She said, I felt as though God had supernaturally touched me. We saw her. She came into the office at the end of the week, and she had had some more extensive tests done, and this is what they said. Without being able to give any good explanation, you had not even a hint of cancer in your body whatsoever. None. Zero. It's not there. 
Now, that's not just one. I'll tell you another one. This young man, he's a college student. I've, I've known his family. Uh, we've been friends with him for a long, long time, for many years. They're in the church. It's a lot family. And their son, Chandler, is a smart, athletic young man. He attends UCF. And uh, some t- many, many months ago, he was, and I, I wasn't even familiar with this disease, but he was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Crohn's disease pretty troubling for a young college student because it affects your life so negatively for the rest of your life. As far as I know, I'm not a medical person. We've got doctors. I've seen them here in this service and medical people, and you know this. I don't. But apparently, from what I recall, there's not really a cure that you can prescribe stuff that helps with the treatment, maybe minimizes some of the symptoms of it. But if you've got Crohn's, you've got Crohn's, and you're going to have Crohn's. Now, let me tell you the rest of the story. Chandler has been diagnosed because the reason I want to mention this, some of you, your mind may work. I I try not to be skeptical, but sometimes I hear something and I think, all right, now what's the rest of the story? And so I want to tell you the whole story. Chandler was not only diagnosed by one, but by three different very capable physicians who all three told him he had Crohn's disease. So this was not like a misdiagnosis, three different ones. I got a text from his mom at the end of the week saying, pray for Chandler. He's got a lot of tasks going on at the Cleveland Clinic. And so she's telling me that, please, please pray, pray. And I responded back and said, I'll be be praying. So while he was there, this is the end of this week. Now, Victoria has already got her. And the end of this week, and so he has this task. The doctor starts doing some more tests, some more biopsies, does some other things in addition to what he was already scheduled for. Then the doctor sends word to the nurse for the nurse to go to the family and say, uh, you know, to Randy and Carla, uh, if you will please wait for an hour, if you will wait for an hour, I want to come and talk to you. And this is what, how the nurse relayed the message. I have done some additional biopsies, and I need to talk to you. Well, my friend said that, I mean, when you hear that, you know, you think, you know, it's already bad. You know, they've done additional biopsies, you know. Why make it worse? And so he said an hour later, this doctor came, and he's sort of out of breath like he had been running from somewhere, and he could not provide any kind of substantive explanation. All he could say is, I did this and this and this, and he specializes in this stuff, and he says, there's not a trace of Crohn's disease in your son's body at all, period. See And I know some of you say, well, he has misdiagnosed. Really? Three times? I don't think so. I choose to believe that while God, while you could not see God, God was at work behind the scenes. Job 23. Look at these two verses right here. Job 23. When he is at work in the north, this is what he said, I catch no sight of him. Like, I know that God is at work, but I can't see him. And and then he turns to the south. I cannot see him there. But then Job said, but God knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I'll come out like gold. I can't see, but just because I can't see him doesn't mean that he's not at work. I can see my body, but I can't see my soul. God said, focus on your soul. I can't see eternity because I'm too blinded by temporary. God said, think about eternity. Well, I can't see what God is doing, but it doesn't mean God is not at work. God, listen, this is for many of you that are in this room right now. You are faced with a dilemma and problem. You don't know which way to turn. Listen, turn to God because God is able to work behind the scenes of your life, even when you don't know what he's up to. Father, Jesus said, I entrust my spirit into your hands.
There are two things that you need to know about the hands of God as we close this morning. His hands are big enough to bless you, and they're scarred enough to remember you. Big enough to... Listen, God is not against you. God is for you. See, the enemy... How many of you know, at any specific time, you can hear one of three voices. Some of you are saying, well, Jeff, you may hear voices. I'm not hearing voices. Well, you hear voices, and maybe sometimes you don't... But you know, three voices are going to speak to you in your life. God's going to speak to you by His Holy Spirit. You're going to speak to yourself. You ever talk to you? You ever have self-talks? You're going to talk to yourself, but you give them an opportunity to guess who else will talk to you, the evil one. Now, if there's more than three voices talking to you, I can't help you with that. I don't know why. I don't, uh, but I'll tell you those three voices. And the evil one will say, God's against you. God's mad at you. God's angry at you. God's done with you. You're finished. Look at what you've done. Look at how many times you've done it. Look how wrong you are. Look at all. You just keep messing up again and again. God's frustrated with you, and, God's just, and God doesn't like you. And you know what God says? If you hear God's voice, God will say, I'm not, I'm not against you. I'm for you. Listen, I don't give up on my kids when my kids make mistakes. I'm still their daddy, and they're still my kids. And I loved them when... You know, they made mistakes, and I loved them when they didn't. Now, I'm not even, don't even ask me which one made the most mistakes. <laughs> but I loved them while they're my kids. And God loves you. And his hands are big enough to bless you. And he wants to bless you. I love this verse. Listen to it as we get ready to close. Psalm 139.5 says, you go before me and follow me. God, you go before me and you follow. I'm, what's he saying? I'm surrounded by you, and you place your hand of blessing on my head. You know what? That was prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. What would he do? He'd take his hand and he'd put it on somebody's head and he would bless them. And God wants to bless your life. But his hands are not only big enough to bless you, they're scarred enough to remember you. Do you know, I mentioned to you that our body is temporary, right? But do you know when you get to heaven, how many of you are thrilled to know you get a brand new body? You get a perfect body. An unflawed body. Can I tell you how unflawed your body is going to be? Your body will not even have, if you've had surgeries or injuries, your body will not even have any scars whatsoever. Now, that's going to be very disappointing to my grandmother, by the way, because she loves showing off scars. Like, what is she going to have to talk about? You see back, oh, you know. And so she, she's going to lose conversation opportunities, my grandmother will. Because <laughs> nobody's going to have scars, except for one. Jesus, in his hands, in his side, in his feet. And while you and I are in heaven with our new bodies, we will not see any scars that we will have. But every time we look at Jesus and we see his hands, we will see visible reminders how much he loved us. That's why Jesus is keeping his scars, so that for all of eternity, we can say, that's how much he loved me. His hands are big enough to bless you. They're scarred enough to remember you. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Look at this last verse, and then we're going to take communion. Here it is. Isaiah, this is God speaking through the prophet. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? That's like, no. Any well-thinking mother would care for their child. But then God said, though she may forget, I will not forget you. I love this. Look at this now. See, I have engraved you where? On the palm of my hands. It's a reminder to me, you're there. I love you. We're getting ready to take communion. This is how we're going to end the service. 
And in this series, we're going to take communion together. Seven statements Jesus made from the cross. He said after he said this, he bowed his head and he died. And Jesus had accomplished what the Father sent him to do. See, you know why Jesus never fought being crucified? Because he was too busy working to fulfill a plan. The plan of salvation. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus personally, not know who he is, but know him as the Savior and the leader of your life, you can do so right here, right now. Would everybody bow your heads? Would everybody please close your eyes? And if you're here today and you'd say, Jeff, I I don't know Jesus. I don't know that my sins are forgiven. I'm not giving attention to my soul, to my spirit. I've not really been thinking about eternity. I've been living for here and now. I know I need Jesus. And I know that Jesus loves me. And I know that Jesus is not against me. I know that Jesus wants to help me. I know that I can trust Jesus. And I just need to receive him. I need to become his follower. And you want to pray and receive Christ into your life today. Would you just lift your hand real high? It's dark in here, so it'll take me just a moment. But I want to see your hand. And I want us to pray. Just lift your hand. I see your hand right over here and your hand right there. See your hand. Anybody else? Just lift it up real high. Just give me a moment. I see your hand right over there. Thank you so much. I see your hand right back there. Anybody else up toward the top? Just lift it up real high and, and just pray this prayer. Everybody pray this prayer. It will help those that raise their hand. Pray it aloud with me. Dear Jesus, I know that you love me. I know that you went to the cross to pay for my sins. I'm sorry for all my sins. I pray that you would forgive me. Cleanse me of all wrong. Come into my life. Give me a brand new start. I want to love you and follow you and know that I'm ready for heaven. In Jesus' name. Everybody said? Let's put our hands together and give Jesus some praise. Can we do it?